Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. I'm your host, Eddie Pangen, and back with me in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. Congratulations on your second daughter. How are you doing now? I'm really happy. Uh, it's been uh, a few busy weeks, but uh, I'm in filled, of, filled with joy. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really best time of my life, I would say. So, so thank you for congratulating me and, and I'm also thankful to be back here in the studio with you. And how much have you been able to read during these weeks? Not as much as I would have liked. Uh, I mean, uh, the first child I got, I, I mean, it was quite, uh, I, I could read quite a lot because she slept a lot in the beginning. But now I have a three-year-old as well and, and she makes me, makes me busy. I can imagine. The good thing is that the book we're going to talk about today is a sketchbook and it's not too lengthy, but it has a lot of wisdom. And the person we have the great pleasure of speaking to is Vishal Kandelwal. He's the author and he's a former equity analyst in India who in 2011 quit his day job and started his own website, Safal Nivshak. And I've read his great newsletter since 2015 and they now have more than 90,000 subscribers worldwide. And Vishal is also an adjunct professor at Flame University. He has a podcast named The 1% Show with many great guests and he has authored and self-published a couple of books, which is the one we will focus on today. So the title for this episode is The Sketchbook of Wisdom, which is uh, a coffee table book with uh, brief texts and illustrations of big concepts on wealth creation and specifically, I would say, how to live a good life. It's a beautiful book filled with wisdom and it's structured in five parts. So first principles, foundational virtues, personal liberation, wealth creation and decision making. And this is not a book where you will learn how to analyze or value stocks but instead a book where you will improve as a person and as an investor. Possibly the most important piece of becoming a good investor in our view is to understand yourself why we think this book is highly relevant for investors. The Sketchbook of Wisdom was first published in 2021 and we are grateful and honored to have its author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Vishal Kandelwal. Hello Vishal and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Hi, Eddie. Uh, nice to be in touch with you. We've been interacting on email for long. Thanks for reaching out and uh, thanks for giving me this opportunity to uh, be a guest on your podcast. You guys are doing a great job in terms of separating the noise from uh, uh, the signal and providing the right signals to readers, investors through the age-old wisdom of some of the great investors and other people who've written such wonderful books out there. Right. So congratulations on your work and um, it's my honor to be on your podcast. So thank you so much again. Thank you so much, Vishal, and thank you for taking the time. Where are you today? So in terms of my physical presence, I am in Navi Mumbai, uh, which is in the western part of India. Uh, in terms of life, I am probably beyond the Hape Mak. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> different ways of looking at life. Uh, in terms of wisdom, I think I'm just getting started. Right, Long way to go. So uh, various uh, ways of looking at how I am today uh, and where I am today. And that's probably my response. Uh, Just learning on my way. uh, We are following a similar path here. Uh, And how did your passion for investing start? It was rather accidentally. So I had, uh, uh, I come from a a Marwari business family, right? So the Marwari is in India known for their business acumen. So I have seen my parents, my father, do good things as far as business is concerned. But when it comes to stock markets, right, uh, whether it's Marwaris or Gujaratis or or the business communities in India, uh, we've all been traders. 
right? So when it comes to businesses, we have long-term views, but when it comes to stock markets, everyone has a short-term view. So I've seen my pay, my father losing a lot of money, making some money, but losing a lot of money during the 1991 and during the 2000 dot-com crash, right? So um, I was not really interested in stock market. I knew what it was basically, but I was never interested. I did my MBA uh, uh, in Mumbai and I completed that MBA in 2003. And uh, 2003 was when there were very few jobs coming up in the stock markets as an analyst. And I had no idea of what that job required. I wanted to get into foreign exchange market. That was something that I had studied during my MBA in the library, spent countless hours studying about the foreign exchange market. But there were not many jobs uh, in this field. And the only job, the only single job that came for, in my way, was that of an equity research analyst, a stock market analyst in simple words. And I took it up because I had promised my to-be wife to get the first job so that we could get married. So it was rather accident that got me into stock markets. Um, and luckily for me, I got into independent research, uh, long-term research and not into stockbroking where you have uh, people working on the short-term mindset. But in terms of uh, reading, learning, thinking more about long-term investing, that is where I also came across the teachings of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Right? So rather it started accidentally, but then I have not looked back since then. So I've, I've grown in terms of my passion for investing. Uh, more towards my passion for teaching people how not to invest and how not to lose their hard-earned money, right? So it's it's grown from just being an investor to now being uh, a teacher uh, uh, of investing. So that's how it is. it has been over the last 20, 25 years. And we're really grateful for that. And your book, The Sketchbook of Wisdom, is a condensed book on deep uh, subjects. What led you to write it? Uh, so as I mentioned in the introduction of the book as well, I think the thoughts and ideas which are contained in the sketchbook of wisdom, they've helped me learn about my own life. And they've also helped me learn about how to live a good, good life, right? And the lessons uh, I've learned from some of the wisest people uh, whom I've covered in the book, they have helped me through my darkest hours. And they've also helped me enable, uh, they've also helped me uh, walk on this journey of life uh, uh, in a free manner, uh, Free from um, fear, free from anxiety, free from sorrow, worry, greed, and envy. Uh, I, I would not claim that uh, I am living a perfect life. Right? Nobody lives a perfect life. It's it's far from perfect, right? But I think the timeless wisdom uh, that I have uh, gained from all these people whom I have profiled and the ideas that I have uh, come across and I've learned, which I have practiced in my own life, yeah, they have they have helped me in terms of maintain my sanity and serenity as I walk on this path of life. And the reason I wrote the sketchbook of wisdom that I wanted to share those ideas uh, and lessons with the readers out there. And more specifically with my kids who I hope uh, would uh, understand these ideas better as they grow up in life. Right. So that was, I think my, my biggest idea of writing the sketchbook of wisdom so that if, if not for anyone else, uh, at least my kids would have a resource that their father uh, compiled uh, based on what, he, how he had lived his life. Right. And, uh, that's the reason I wrote the book in a very simple language, in a very conversational language. And I did not really take uh, uh, ideas of wisdom uh, from recent times. I just took age-old wisdom, right, uh, uh, which actually break, breaks through the noise of information, uh, which is all there, the news that we are surrounded with, the anxieties that uh, people are suffering from because of all the confusion, and all the noise out there, right? So my idea was to break through, my help my kids break through, help other people break through. Uh, it was a moment of, I think, ego that I could help people do that. Uh, but I then, as I mentioned, purely uh, the idea was to write this book for my kids with a sense of hope that the wisdom contained in the, the pages, right, will guide them 
not just through the despair uh, and ups and downs of life, but also provide them uh, the necessary mental tools to grow in life. So that was my reason to write the sketchbook of wisdom. And I wrote that book in 2020. And in hindsight, I realized that I could not have found a better time to write that book because that the, that was a time when the world was savaged uh, by disease and despair. People were losing hope. There was a lot of confusion around, a lot of concerns around. right? And the scars still remain. People still suffer. right? So in hindsight, I realized that it was in times like these that we need to go quiet. We need to go within. We need to uh, quieten our monkey minds. right? And we need to go in the search of lessons from some of the wisest people who've ever walked on earth. So I think that was the idea. I, I'm not really sure whether I've done justice with that, but that is what I've tried to do through the sketchbook of wisdom. Right, and, it, and it's called a sketchbook. Yeah? So you have not only written the book, but also illustrated it with these beautiful uh, paintings and drawings of yours. And this really helps me to remember all the lessons much better in, in the story. And my mother was an illustrator and she was always thinking and remembering things in pictures. So I'm curious to hear what what impact the drawing has had on your life. No, I think uh, it has had a great impact on life. I've never, I've always been an amateur painter or drawer. Like I've never learned how to draw well, and I'm still learning, right? Still trying. In fact, my it was my son's, my 11 year old son's uh, um, advisor. I should be writing a book on illustrations or creating illustrations rather than simply writing a boring book on investing in wisdom. So he wanted me to illustrate, and I thought that was an opportunity to. Uh, do that with the first book that I am writing, which is going to be in print, right? So uh, very much uh, like reading, very much like writing, I think illustrating or drawing, and I'm, I'm sure you must agree or your mother would agree that illustrating or painting is is an exercise in mindfulness, right? And when you are into it, you are in a flow, you're just focused on into it, right? You're not thinking about the rest of the world, you're not thinking about the noise around, you're not thinking anything else, but just focus on the drawing and focus on illustrating, right? Which which brings a sense of calmness, right? So that was my idea of illustrating. And I, I think uh, the even the second book that I am uh, going to write, that would contain a lot of illustrations because I believe in this uh, technique called the Feynman technique. And uh, that is something which I've also written about in my book, right? So Feynman technique is named after the brilliant physicist Richard Feynman, who said that uh, you know, if you want to really learn something in life, right, you should first learn about the thing and you should try to explain that to a child. Right? If you're able to explain that to a child, you have really learned it. But if you're not able to explain that to a child, you should probably go back to the drawing board, relearn stuff, and probably even dive deeper into what you're learning. And then again, come back to the child and explain that. Right, Till the time you're not able to explain that. So I think what better way to explain ideas to kids or to even younger adults than to illustrate uh, uh, apart from what you are writing. So if not for my writing, I, I hope people take ideas from the illustrations that I have made in the book. And uh, uh, I I hope I was able to convey the idea as well. So uh, overall, I have been the biggest beneficiary of the entire exercise, uh, uh, including the illustrations, because uh, as I mentioned, it was a moment of mindfulness. Those six, eight months which I took to write the book, they were like the most serene months of my life. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I mean, I would call you an expert illustrator. I think it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. So... I mean, it, it was so uh, it was really nice reading it, and I will reread it and read sections of it many times in my life. I think, and um, you start the book with a really deep and touching story from uh, the great investor Arnold Vandenberg, who managed to survive the the Holocaust. Uh, the story is about how how we can turn tough situations into something positive. Why did you choose to begin with that story? 
in fact arnold's uh, introduction to my book was not there in the first uh, print which i had done uh, around 2000 copies uh, and uh, uh, so uh, i i did not know much about arnold then i just uh, uh, i just knew briefly about him but someone introduced me to a friend introduced me to arnold uh, for the 1% show for the podcast that i um, that i have and arnold readily agreed so to my surprise he agreed he, we had a conversation on phone uh, before the podcast and we had a long conversation it was like a it was like a a, a a trailer for me right in terms of what was coming and uh, i hosted arnold in the 14th episode of the 1% show which is also one of my favorite uh, episodes not just because it was long but also because uh, arnold took almost like two and a half hours to answer just the first question that i had and a person of who's like 85 year old and who's willing to share everything that he has uh, with the world right without asking for anything in return that was something really great for me so and i and i took that as an opportunity because i sent my book to arnold he surprisingly he liked it and he talked about it in his the podcast as well and i thought that was an opportunity to ask him or request him for an introduction uh, for my book and he agreed to do that right so the reason i asked arnold uh, uh, for this uh, introduction of course there are a couple of more introductions uh, in the book but the reason i uh, uh, wanted arnold to write an introduction to the book uh, is because the ideas that i've talked about he's actually lived through them for 80 years right so who better a person to uh, really introduce a book on the ideas that really help mankind through their times of despair and hopelessness right he's been through years of hopelessness he's been through years of bitterness and uh, uh, one of the key takeaways uh, from arnold's story if, if you were to go and listen to the podcast or if you were to listen to any uh, uh, interview of arnold is that uh, what matters to us in life is not uh, what happens to us but how we choose to react to whatever happens to us right so arnold uh, could have chosen to live with despair given the fact that he survived the holocaust he saw almost 30 plus members of his family perish in the holocaust he uh, went without food for years and uh, he was uh, in an orphanage for years separated from his parents for years he would have chosen to live a life of despair of bitterness and self pity right but he chose to live with honor he chose to live with kindness right and that is what makes him what he is today right so uh, i could not find a better person to write an introduction to him i just love his story i'm inspired by his story and i probably that's one of the podcast uh, sessions which i have shared with the most number of people out there right so uh, uh, that was the reason i asked arnold and he and he did that his story is a reminder that we could live a happy life despite all the sufferings that we have right so that was the reason for me choosing arnold over anyone else arnold is really a fascinating person and i really recommend everyone to listen to to your interview with him and what i think is also remarkable with him is that he keeps developing i mean he's he's getting quite old but he's still like he's doing his uh, exercises every day he's now stopped eating meat i mean he's he's developing a lot Uh, at this age that's true that's he was he was uh, for the entire like 2 or 45 minutes of podcast he was standing and talking and uh, i'm not sure whether he was standing on his trampoline because that is what he said that he, he spends a lot of time on his trampoline jumping at his age right so uh, if if that does not give you the energy to get up and work uh, on what matters to you and be happy in life i think nothing else would give you that motivation so yeah agree and uh, back to your book you have divided it into five parts so how did you decide on these ones so yeah you're right uh, uh, the book contains the sketchbook contains around 50 ideas uh, uh, and there are five parts uh, which i have named uh, i think first principles 
There's one on foundational virtues. There's something on personal liberation. There's one on money and wealth creation. And of course, the final part is on decision making, right? So uh, the idea of dividing the book into five parts uh, did not come when I was starting to write the book, right? I just thought about the 50 ideas that I wanted to write, right? Uh, But to give a break to the reader, right? I chose when I was trying to complete the book or finish the book, I chose to divide them into five different parts uh, uh, because... uh, uh, I think to become a really all-rounded wise person, right? You have to be wise in all areas of your life, whether it's how you make decisions, whether how you handle your money, which is also about making decisions, whether uh, the kind of person that you want to become, uh, how do you decide what kind of person you want to become, right? How do you become free? How do you become financially free? How do you liberate yourself? How do you behave with others, right? So uh, uh, if you look at the first three parts, which is about personal liberation, foundational virtues, and first principles, I could have combined that into a single uh, section instead of breaking that into three sections. But I think that was uh, just a after effect of completing the book and thinking that that should give the reader a break, right? And help him, him or her decide, right, which part to start. So these are like five chapters of my book, right? And each chapter contains uh, uh, sub-chapters. So that is how I actually went about it. Rather than first starting with five sections and then writing ideas about that, it was the other way around. And we can't go into all of the great stories and lessons, but uh, we recommend everyone to buy the book, of course. Uh, but we can we can touch on some of them. And in the first part, uh, which is called First Principles, as you said, uh, there is one story named Chop Wood, Carry Water, which I think is uh, interesting. Can you tell our listeners about this story? So Chop Wood, Carry Water is, I think, one of the, my favorite Zen stories uh, uh, with left me with the idea that what we call success is not really a destination, right? but just a milestone in our life's journeys and, and that we must uh, continue our work even when we pass such milestones that we call as success. Right? I see a lot of people across walks of life who are running behind something. Often they are running behind money or they are running behind power or fame or designation, right? That's not how I wanted to live my life. Uh, I would rather focus on things that make me happy and do them irrespective of what I achieve in the process. And even if I don't achieve much by way of how we generally keep score, right? Which is the outer scorecard thing that Buffett talks about. Uh, as far as uh, uh, the idea of chopping wood and carry water, carrying water is concerned, and especially how investors can uh, uh, use this idea. I think uh, no one else but Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are living embodiment of this idea. Right? Chopping wood, carrying water simply means that even if you achieve enlightenment, even after you achieve success, you should be doing the same things that you have been doing in the process of achieving that success. Right. So if you, if you, if we all know about the stories of Buffett and Munger at 92 years age, 98 years of age, they're still learning. They're still reading books. They're still wanting to improve themselves. They are chopping wood and carrying water. Right, even after re- reaching what they call the what they may call the enlightenment in, in investing or decision making is concerned. Right? So I think that's a big lesson for us as investors. I see the world as a meaningless distraction, right? And how much ever success we we may achieve, right? We will do well if we keep walking on our journeys, keep learning without waiting to reach somewhere or to achieve something. And I think stoicism also has this idea that just doing the work is enough. You don't need to seek credit. You don't need to try to achieve something in life or try to get some benefit out of the kind of work that you're doing, right? In Hinduism as well, uh, uh, there's this famous uh, saying uh, that uh, uh, Lord Krishna uh, says in the battlefield of Mahabharata, he says that you just need to do your duty, right? You just 
you cannot be focusing on the outcome just do your duty just chop wood and carry water and rather than focusing on whether you're getting going to get enlightenment out of it or not so that was my idea of choosing this story this zen story uh, uh as one of the starting points of my book and for me on a daily basis right uh, writing one book or doing my work is like chopping wood and carrying water i don't really uh, uh go by how many people read my work of course that's all, always interesting to know how many people watch my podcast i just focus on chopping wood carry water and doing my work so uh, all these ideas i'm trying to embody in my life uh, uh, to whatever way i can and and that's something which i also as i mentioned i want uh, others around me if they want or kids around me if they get inspired by this idea of say chopping wood and carrying water rather than focusing on what life gets to them rather than what they are getting to life so that was one of the brilliant ideas that i or or a, or a beautiful story which i read long time back and i thought that was a great way to start this book as well and what is your motivation to keep chopping this wood and carrying this water i think the process the process of chopping wood and carrying water itself is the motivation so as i mentioned just doing the work is enough so work is the motivation there's no uh, external uh, success uh, external factors that i work with uh, uh, i if i look in hindsight at the last 11 years uh, of running my website which is safal niveshak i have never invited people to advertise on my website i have never advertised my work anywhere i just publish article i just publish tweets i just write tweets and write books and everything even if you look at the sketchbook of wisdom i had some offers to publish the book and sell internationally but i i said that i want to do it on my own because this is like chopping wood and carrying water for me just writing the book self publishing it doing the entire stuff uh, on my own in fact uh, for the sketchbook of wisdom except the actual part of printing the book i have written the book i have edited it myself i have laid out on a book uh, uh, writing software i still pack my books so the books that you received they all hand packed by me so i enjoy the process of going through the entire part so that is chopping wood carrying water to me right nothing else so work is the motivation there is no external thing which i am focusing on it sounds like you have really found your passion and your your ikigai which you write about in the third part personal liberations where uh, where you write about living your life's desire and and keep looking until you have found it uh, can you tell our listeners a bit more about this concept No I think uh, uh, ikigai is definitely something uh, that I live by uh, uh, I uh, also believe in this idea of uh, a lot of people define financial freedom as uh, uh, having enough money so that they can uh, retire from life and they can enjoy whatever they can do whatever they want I think uh, financial freedom is something about that definitely but financial freedom is also I I just see I just see money and wealth creation as a tool to achieve financial freedom Uh, to be able to do whatever i want to do in life with people that i want to do in life wherever i want to do in life right so that's that's my idea of ikigai of course ikigai is a much broader concept but uh, i think uh, that idea of personal liberation right nobody is going to give you the freedom right you have to seek it yourself and i think it was naval ravikant uh, who said in this podcast with chain parish and i think that's a must listen podcast for everyone i i listen to it at least once a year definitely and he any and, he, and he said i think uh, he's moved away from uh, freedom uh, to do something to freedom from something right so uh, uh, there's a big difference between all these things we all can get liberated if we choose to right uh, and in that chapter on personal liberation right how people should be living their life's desire rather than running after something or, or living with their outer scorecard i have shared a story uh, 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 about alan watts who's a british philosopher right and he gave this lecture called 
what do you desire what do i desire and he says that when i go and meet children or when i go and meet students and they ask me what should we do in life he says that uh, uh, i ask them i ask the students this question that if money was not a factor what you would be doing in life right if money was not there what you would be doing in life and a lot of people say okay of course everyone needs money we need money to uh, buy things to live a happy life that's that's a given right but uh, what he intends by saying is that if you are really passionate about something and if you think that your skill can earn you enough money so that you are able to live without worries of money right uh, uh, you can try and become good at that thing and once you try and become good at something because you already are passionate about that thing uh, it could be writing it could be painting it could be singing it could be blogging it could be anything right podcasting as well once you are passionate about it you will automatically get good at it because you'll spend a lot of time practicing that and once you get good at it people are going to pay for it right so it's very important to answer this question uh, rather than answering right which job or which work is going to pay me the most right you should be answering what do i really desire right so that is how you free yourself rather than uh, i think if it was it was nasin tale who said that the biggest uh, 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 addictions in the world are cocaine and a monthly paycheck right so um, uh, how do you liberate yourself from there how do you live your life's desire i think it's a very important question uh, people should also go and listen probably re listen to what steve jobs said in this i think 2005 lecture that he gave at stanford university right you have to keep searching till you find that life's desire and you should not be living life according to what others are asking you to do that right know what do you desire and you'll be liberated so that was my idea for this chapter about personal liberation and we spoke to eric jorgensen in in episode 18 of investing by the books about his the almanac of naval ravikant and you mentioned this another quote by by naval and he's uh, also a fascinating person with so much wisdom uh, but a quote uh, with me from that book that has stayed is naval saying that desire is a contract with yourself to be unhappy until you get what you want so we spoke about desire now but what do you think about this quote uh, i think i i uh, 50% agree to what naval said right so as you mentioned desire uh, is a contract that leads you to unhappiness until what you get i think uh, we humans are motivated by desires so i would not say that we should not have any desires right uh, my idea of living a happy life is to not have unreasonable desires right if you don't want to if you if you are not desiring to become good at something you will never be good at something so it's always it's always important to know and and when you desire to be good at something right that will not lead you to unhappiness for sure right it's only when you for example if you want to desire to beat everyone else at podcasting or if you want to beat everyone else as blogging right then probably you are probably setting yourself up for failure because you can only become a better version of yourself you have no control over whether you'll become the best in the world of course it's always a good idea to try to do that but in an age of alpha like we investors have been taught right we all chasing alpha right uh, i think it's always it's it's fine to settle for average right it's it's fine to settle at that mid range of the normal distribution curve rather than always looking at the right hand, right hand mode side because not everyone is going to reach there it's always a good idea to aspire to be there but you should be fine settling for the average and one way of doing that is to have reasonable desires if you go back to the i think definition of investing that ben graham talked about in 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 the intelligent investor one part of the definition of investing is having reasonable return expectation right so you still have a return expectation you still have the desire to earn some kind of return if you are a stock market investor 
but then reasonableness is what is required over here if you really want to be happy and i think buffett has also talked about the fact that the secret of happiness is to have lower expectations but he's also talking about expectations so you should be having expectations from yourself but lower them right so my idea of happiness is not that you should not have any desire but i think you should have reasonable desires and focus on things that you can control rather than all the other things or most other things that you have no control over so we need to separate that and that is how i look at this entire quotation from naval and in uh, part 5 which is about uh, decision making i think uh, you really drive home the point that you that you mentioned early in this discussion about uh, richard feynman that you should uh, be able to explain a, a concept so a toddler can understand Uh, and instead of setting the titles based on different biases which we normally see like confirmation bias is the title and then you you go through the the concept you actually name them uh, like beware your internal yes person and beware the psychology of loss tell us about your reasoning behind this i think it's good you mentioned about feynman uh, because feynman apart from the feynman technique he also talks about the idea of knowing something versus knowing the name of something so we all know the names of biases right uh, uh, internal yes person uh, we all know about confirmation bias right we all know the name of loss aversion but what does loss aversion really means i can throw these jargons in front of my kids and they are not going to understand that but when i talk about the psychology of loss and how we behave when we are facing losses or mistakes or disasters how do you behave that time right giving examples of people who behaved in a in a a uh, 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 wrongful manner when we were facing losses or mistakes so um, i think uh, simplifying even what you are talking about uh, also helps you uh, explain that idea to someone and also explain the ideas to yourself confirmation bias anyone can search and anyone can know about confirmation but bias right what what does exactly does it mean in simple layman's language is how i decided to title my chapters rather than saying confirmation i don't want to read about confirmation bias i have read it so many times right i still suffer from those biases i have read so many times about all these biases if i have uh, come across the sketchbook of wisdom where the author was talking about confirmation bias and loss aversion everything i would have just dumped it and said okay i i know about all these things right but how do you explain the same idea in a different language in a more storytelling format in an idea that someone is going to remember for a lot of lot long period of time that's the entire idea about mental models it's not just about knowing the name of mental models it's it's about remembering them when you actually need them and how do you remember them you remember them when you have learned that in your language in a very simple language that you really understand rather than the jargons out there so that was the idea interesting and and are there any of these biases that have impacted you the most and and maybe shaped you the most I think all of them uh, suffer from all these biases we are humans right uh, the idea again of uh, learning about the psychology of investing and learning kahneman or reading morgan housel and all these people who have written so well about biases and everything is not to try to eliminate these biases we cannot ever eliminate these biases because we are humans right the idea is to always try to minimize the impact or the negative effects of these biases on our lives because we know what we are getting into right so i think uh, one of the biases that i continue to suffer from uh, of course one is confirmation biases that is how we have grown up in life that is how we live our life we we, we believe something and then we look at the world in the same way right so uh, 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 the man with the hammer syndrome is is a kind of thing right uh, you are an investor and you look at everything from an investing point of view 
and that's uh, probably that's that's a reason i have tried to diversify my skills across not just focusing on blogging but also in focusing in, uh, on illustrating right so i'm able to uh, uh, not just uh, look at the world from a blogger's point of view but also from a child's point of view which is which is more of an illustrating and drawing kind of a mind right so that is one bias uh, that i suffer from confirmation overconfidence right i think uh, uh, the biggest or the most uh, damaging bias that we suffer from is overconfidence we are always overconfident in life right? whether we are driving a cars or whether we are uh, 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 running a business or whether we are investing our money we are always overconfidence because uh, 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 we always trying to win the game right whatever game we are playing so overconfidence has hurt me a lot uh, in the past i've tried to minimize that by using checklists by uh, uh, reflecting on what i am doing confirmation bias is something that have has really hurt me it's like an ostrich right? you you dig your uh, head in the sand and you think you confirm that okay uh, the danger is not coming right so uh, uh, they all these biases i think if we talk about biases or the biases that i suffer from we'll end up having a full day 24 hour <laughs> long conversation so yeah but these overconfidence is something that i would want to talk about here. Your conclusion is that I know that I know nothing is the highest wisdom. At, at the same time, you're helping the reader to make better decisions. And to make a decision, you have to base it on knowledge. How do you reconcile this? And when do you know that you know enough? You never know enough. I think that's the idea. Uh, uh, when uh, uh, someone like Socrates or Aristotle saying that I know that I, I know nothing, I think that's the high. And they say that's the highest form of wisdom, right? The idea of trying to know more, and that's what I'm trying to do with my book as well, so that the, the readers know more about these age-old wisdom, right? Uh, and also at the same time say, saying that uh, I know that I know nothing. I think the idea of trying to learn more is an idea in humility, and it is only when you try to learn more, you realize that you know nothing, right? If you don't learn more, or if you are not really inclined to learn on a daily basis in your life, whether you're an investor or just a decision maker or just a normal human being who's not really involved in investing or such kind of decision making. The idea of trying to improve yourself uh, 1% on a daily basis. And if you can do that, right, it is only then you also uh, 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 go through that humility that there's so much to know that you know nothing, right? Uh, uh, so that is how I try to reconcile that. And I and I always, uh, when I'm trying to explain this idea to others, right, I always give the example of, uh, uh, or uh, I always ask people to imagine that they are on an island of knowledge which is surrounded by a sea of ignorance, right? Uh, what happens when the island of knowledge increases? When the island of knowledge increases, so does the shore of ignorance, which simply means the more you know, the more you realize that there is to know. And that's the reason you should keep learning because it's only when you keep learning you will, you will, keep realizing that there's so much to uh, learn and so much to know so that you, again, it's a virtuous cycle. You will still want to learn more. So that's, that's I think, my way of reconciling both these ideas of knowing that I know nothing and then still trying to teach people, okay, this is what really works in life. So it's my way, as I mentioned in the previous answer to your question, that overconfidence is, some, is one bias which I suffer from a lot. So telling myself, reminding myself on a daily basis that I know that I know nothing, and that's the reason I need to learn more, is also my antidote to overconfidence. So, yeah. And a, a, a bit of a follow-up question to that is, when you grow older, you seem to be, I mean, less open to new ideas. So how, how, how is that for you? Have you seen that in yourself? 
No, I think luckily for me, uh, I have role models in terms of Buffett and Munger who are much more older and uh, I learn from them that uh, age is not a bar in terms of learning, right? So it's only when people uh, uh, don't know about these people or people are not willing to learn, as you mentioned. I think age has nothing to do with learning. It's how you are looking at the world, how you're looking at yourself, the kind of humility that you have. Uh, most people that you will come across realize that as they grow or once they are out of their schools and colleges, they have completed the education, right? But uh, if you if you read the the wisest people in the world, right, the education always continues till your last moment. Right? And uh, uh, as I mentioned, who better uh, uh, representatives of this idea of constantly learning at any age than Buffett and Munger that we have. So as investors, I think, uh, as an investor, I think the biggest lesson that I've had from Buffett and Munger is not around investing. It's about living living a good life. It's about li- being a lifelong learner. It's about uh, the idea of enjoying the process more than the proceeds. It's the idea of living with an inner scorecard. They are all these lessons which are not relevant to investors. They are relevant to investors, but they're relevant to everyone, right? So uh, it's not about age. I think it's entirely about how much humility that you have. So with increased age, I think the uh, level of humility should also rise uh, in people. And that is when they realize that okay, there's so much to know in the world that I know nothing, even when I'm growing up. And reaching this financial independence is still a foundational uh, aspect to, to get this life and to be able to to live happy, as we have talked about here and we also spoke about with, uh, for example, Gautam Baid in that episode. Uh, and, and the fourth part of your book is, is named Wealth Creation. And there you bring up some concepts like frugality, delayed gratification, and having enough, for example, compounding as well. Um, but in your pursuit of becoming financially independent, which of these have been most important? Well, I think all three, uh, uh, whether it's about, so it starts with uh, frugality and uh, the idea of frugality is not to be such a miser that you don't enjoy your life currently as well. You have to strike a balance over there. Uh, uh, we all know of the marshmallow experiment of how kids who did not did not eat that first marshmallow in the first 15 minutes of their time uh, were given the second marshmallow and we are all thought that we have to delay gratification so that we can enjoy both the marshmallows my idea is slightly different that uh, we should be delaying gratifications but not everything right so if you have uh, 10 marshmallows with you right you should save five marshmallow for the future but you should also eat five now right so you should strike a balance but the idea of frugality is to live a life which where you're striking this balance, we are also saving money for the future. Why? Because you also believe in the idea of delayed gratification. Right? Delayed gratification is, uh, in simple words, uh, uh, leaving something for the future, leaving, leaving some gratification for the, for the future in terms of money, uh, saving and investing enough money so that you do not worry about money when you need it the most, right? In 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 a in a, at a time when you stop earning more money, and it's only your investments that are going to help you over there, right? And and then the third idea is uh, the idea of having enough. I think uh, that's one of the we all we all talk about frugality. We all talk about dealing gratification. There's enough resources. There enough people talk about that, uh, uh, and we are keep th- we we keep thinking about these ideas of how can we I be more frugal? How can I save more money? How can I deal with more gratification? How can I let my power of compounding work for me? Right, but we generally don't stop to answer this question is how much is enough, right? Uh, uh, someone said that in a rat race, even if you win, you are still a rat, right? So the point is that uh, uh, asking this question of how much is enough is a very important question that everyone should keep asking, right? Now, uh, 
people may question okay so did didn't warren buffett ask this question of how much is enough because he's keep he's still at investing he's still earning money he's still become a multi uh, like uh, more than 100 billion dollars of wealth what about jeff bezos elon musk and all those kind of people don't they have sense of enough i think if you look at all these people right uh, at some point of their lives they they've always said that it's not the proceeds that really matter to them it's the enjoyment that they get from the kind of work that they are doing right that's perfectly fine if you keep working on things that you love doing but doing work chasing something as i mentioned uh, in one of the previous responses chasing money chasing success designation and not having that finish line imagine running a race without a finish line right it's like running on a treadmill you just keep run run running 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 and you don't go anywhere right and the more you run the more is the probability that you'll be thrown off the treadmill right so i think uh, uh, to really live a sane financial life and to really move towards that goal of achieving financial freedom mathematically right uh, one has to combine the ideas of frugality delayed gratification and the sense of having enough uh, i don't think uh, we can exclude anything of these and still aim to achieve that financial independence and as i use a term mathematically i think uh, i i believe that financial freedom is a lot about how you look at freedom right uh, people look at financial freedom as a number right say 25 to 30 times your annual expenses when you have that number you are financially free that's a mathematical way of looking at it right if you if your needs are less if your wants are less right you can also be happy with less amount of money even if you have not mathematically achieved your financial freedom uh, when i started my journey as safal niveshak uh, uh, starting safal niveshak in 2011 right one of the reasons or one of the factors that helped me quit my job and do something of my own was that i had no financial liability right and i had uh, saved around like one and a half two years of savings in my bank account to take care of any 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 financial requirements rather than going back on job i did not really have a plan b or a idea of going back on job right and uh, uh, my son was born then uh, and uh, unfortunately he was born like two months premature so uh, almost uh, 30 40% of the savings got evaporated in hospitalization expenses right and in india you know the health the health uh, uh, insurance does not really cover uh, uh, that kind of uh, stay in the hospital right so uh, uh, i think uh, that really laid the ground for me uh, in terms of uh, looking at financial freedom in that way that i was not really worried about money even then right uh, uh, for me i was financially free that time as well because i was not worried about money be as a family and i had a very supportive spouse right so one way to look at financial freedom is a number the second way is to reduce your wants and reduce your needs not with an idea of sacrificing your present and only taking care of your future but if you are intrinsically happy right if you really understand the wisdom of the ages right uh, uh, nobody talked about financial freedom it's a new concept right and it's a concept that people in financial industry used to sell their products right an advisor will say i'll help you achieve financial freedom my mutual fund is going to help you achieve financial freedom the stock is going to help you achieve financial freedom right these are i think uh, terms used by people to sell their products but financial freedom is not just a mathematical number i think it's to use that cliche term it's also a state of mind so that's my long response to a simple question that you asked And uh, we have received a, a question from our Twitter follower Mansoor seventy five fifteen, wondering what are the prerequisites to become a full time investor, and uh, 
trainer on investing? Prerequisites to becoming a full-time investor. First thing which I advise people who ask me how to become a full-time investor, I tell them, please don't try to become a full-time investor, right? If you're managing your own money, because investing is not a full-time job, right? If you're managing your own money, if you're managing someone else's money professionally, that's a different thing altogether. If you're really wanting to do that, first thing is you need to uh, 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 test yourself whether you're really capable of managing someone else's money and with that, for that, you have to first test yourself for the first five, 10 years of your investing career, whether you can really do well or do justice to someone else's money that you're managing. So that's one idea in terms of knowing that you can really do well as an investor. Uh, second, and I think more important idea uh, that you should have in mind is that you should have no financial liabilities, right? Because if you're depending on investing full time, right, you cannot be having a financial liability and that liability comes to you and the stock market returns and the money that you earn from stock market is not always sure. You can be going through a big crisis and your portfolio would have crashed. And that time, if you have to repay your financial liability, right, I think you'll be hurt for life. So not having financial liability is a good uh, metric uh, uh, to have or good idea to uh, uh, practice before you get into full-time investing. The third uh, and even a more important thing is to have the man mental aptitude to become a full-time investor. A full-time investing, uh, despite all the charms and despite all the good things people talk about, is a very lonely activity, right? Uh, uh, you are thinking yourself, you are doing nothing but reading annual reports, you are maybe creating financial models for yourself, right? You may join groups and you may join group of investors as well, but that's not a full-time thing anyways, right? So mostly you are lonely, right? You have no one to look up to as far as uh, uh, bouncing off your decisions are concerned. So it's a lonely activity. Do you have the aptitude to be a loner and uh, uh, play this game, right? Uh, so these are the three things. Uh, and of course, uh, you need to have a complete support from your family, right? Uh, my kids uh, during the initial years, especially my daughter in the initial years of my uh, uh, career as a teacher starting Safar Nimbeshak, thought that I did not do anything, right? So your kids start thinking that you are a useless fellow who is just sitting at home and not doing anything because annual reports, reading annual reports does not seem like work to them. Yeah, you're, you're at home, you're not going anywhere, no office, nothing, right? So you have to have complete family support. Uh, your spouse needs to understand what you're doing, right? Uh, I think these are the few factors that one can or one need to ensure to even try to become a full-time investor. But again, a warning, investing is not a full-time activity. So what was the second question that you asked me with respect to this thing? I forgot about that. No, maybe we can uh, instead. Uh, why is it not a full-time activity? So uh, um, I think if you look at, if you look at uh, uh, again, I'm talking from a point of view of an investor who's managing his or her money, right? Uh, the more time that you give to investing, right? You, of course, you need to read annual reports, you have to research, right? The more you time you are active in the stock market, right? We have seen that activity is negatively correlated with results in stock market. You've seen the best investors out there, right? Who, who are the people who are more active in the stock market? They are the stock traders, right? How many successful stock traders do we know of compared to how many successful investors that we know of over the, over the last 30, 40, 50 years? I'm not talking about the last five years as well, right? Action is not same as uh, uh, a positive result. And uh, my idea is that uh, the more, the, if, you're, if you're trying to go full-time into investing, you will be led to a lot of action, which can be detrimental to your long-term returns, right? You have to research a company. If you are, I'm, I'm come, again, uh, uh, I'm coming from a point of view of long-term investing. I'm not talking about a trader, right? Uh, you just need to find those 
high quality businesses that you can stay with for a long period of time and that's it what do you do in the remaining part of your time you just keep learning right you read books and you read resources and you listen to podcasts so if you are fine with that you still can still become a full time investor uh but these are the reasons that i don't think that people should really look at investing as a full time activity you can invest sensibly finding those high quality businesses while doing your job as well while working on some other business as well where you have a certainty of income where you have a certainty of financial resources right i would rather uh, see people saving uh, or working hard to grow their incomes saving money and being sensible with that money to invest in the stock market or invest in equities for the long period of time and that's it right there are better things to do in life than reading annual reports so i think most of our listeners and at least uh, us here at radai we are we are such nerds so we we want to be full time investors and we want to read about companies all the time it doesn't mean that we are uh, in the stock market like watching all the stock prices and so on but but doing the job it's uh, it feels like the time is not enough to do all the research what do you think nicholas yeah exactly that that that's the point i had but I mean, exactly as as you say, Vishal. I think for the majority, the majority will be dragged into useless activity and not really reading about the the useful stuff. So I, I think it's it's correct that it's. I mean, it's just for for uh, a small a small part of the population that that should do it. Yeah, it's not for everyone. That's when I think also as I mentioned, right? Uh, uh, a lot of your time spent uh, goes towards researching and reading and learning and improving yourself, right? Uh, uh, probably 90 95% of investors who get into full time are not going to do that they are going to just open up a cnbc and cnbc running in the background and they are going to call up their brokers or uh, talk to their brokers and just buy and sell buy and sell buy and sell on a daily basis right because they have nothing else to do right so they don't don't understand the idea of learning and practicing and reading and all those kind of things right so nobody is i i have met so many investors in the past uh, 11 years or been on my own and uh, despite people knowing about the importance of process right nobody has a process not many people have the process or the willingness to stick to that process for a long period of time right most people don't read most people are not learning they're just trading and that's the reason my warning is to those people who are not having that mindset of learning and reading and researching right and just trading in the stock markets so because the more free time you have i think it was pascal you said i pascal you said right i think the biggest problem that we have as a humanity is that we cannot sit in a room quietly not doing anything we want to do something all the time so that is a warning that i have for people who want to get into full time investing and it's funny that we got into this discussion about becoming a full time investor because uh, on my phone i have three tabs that are always open and one of them is a sketch and uh, a drawing that you have done which is named becoming a full time investor so i had to take it up now and you mentioned it's a venn diagram with different aspects and you mentioned quite many of them now but but one aspect that we didn't talk about is is the, having the experience of dealing with deep and long bear markets successfully and that is very relevant at this point uh, what are your thoughts on that and how are you dealing with this current bear market now of course it's 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 one thing to read about bear markets uh, like a 2008 or or a market crash like 2020 it's a different thing altogether to actually go through that pain and long and you are not really sure when that pain is going to end right uh, a friend of mine actually did a, a survey recently or or a, or a poll recently on twitter uh, asking people how many of you actually were investing your own money in 2008 
right? And received a lot of responses. And they were like only 30% or 25% of people who were there in 2008 uh, with their money and losing money. Uh, remaining 80% of the people who are there in the stock market, I think we all known as like Robin Hood investors in India. There are different kind of names that are out there. Right? They have not seen the pain of a bear market. So if not really seen the pain of a bear market and bear market in the sense, it could be a short bear market. I'm not really talking about an extended period of falling stock prices, but actually seeing that uh, capitulation in stock prices, actually seeing that crash in stock prices from like 80%, 90% down, even the best of the stocks out there and nobody knows what to do, right? As recently as 2020, right? Uh, I uh, have talked to so many people, right? Uh, out there in the stock markets, who joined the market after the market started rising in 2020, right? Because we are at home, right? We had technology that really helped us, uh, enabled uh, fast trading and all those kind of things which happened. In India, uh, there was a, a multiplier effect in, in the number of trading accounts which were opened during the 2020-21 period, right? So many new investors joined in. Uh, even if you look at the crypto market, the Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency market, uh, I think uh, as per statistics, India has more number of cryptocurrency accounts than stock DMAT accounts. And stock markets in India have been there for the last 40 years, 40 plus years. Cryptocurrency market has just opened up recently. And despite that, most number of people out there are trading cryptocurrencies. Most of them are less than 25 years of age. They have not seen a major crash with their own money. They have learned about it. And that's the reason I think it's very important for people to understand that if you are trying to get into full-time investing, you should have at least one or two bad cycles that you've experienced personally with your own money. If not, at least wait for that bad period and know what kind of investor you are and know how you behave in those periods. And then only think about or rethink about whether you want to get into full-time investing or not. And your website, Safal Nivshak, does a great job to teach people about all of these concepts. And uh, as you write, there is a phrase for successful investor in Hindi. Are there anything uh, that we haven't touched upon yet that you think is worth mentioning? How, what, do you, what we need to become successful investors? Oh, I think uh, uh, you uh, you need a vision in terms of uh, the kind of business that you're owning, right? Or where their business are going to go, uh, not in the next two to three quarters or next, even next three to five years, but probably the next 20, 30 years broadly, where they're going to go. You don't need to predict the earnings numbers or revenue numbers for them. You Nobody can do that with precision. So vision is very important thing. And I think uh, you also need uh, the patience to uh, hold on to your process, to be with those businesses for as long a time as they remain good quality, right? So my philosophy or my principle of becoming a Safal Niveshak or a successful investor is that you need to combine your vision with patience and painful amount of patience. And uh, uh, that is what I practice as well. Uh, for me, I though I have done illustration, I've talked about when to sell a stock. I now invest in the idea of never selling my stocks till the time they remain good. Not when they become, as people say, overvalued. Not when people start thinking or everyone is thinking that markets are about to crash or the economy is going to go into recession, sell the stocks now and buy again later at lower prices. I don't do all those kind of things. I want to uh, focus a lot of my time on reading and learning and uh, illustrating and teaching people how to become better investors rather than focusing on where the markets are going or where my stocks are going. If I can just focus on where the business is going, Right, I would not want to sell that business till the time the business is doing fine or reasonably fine for me. So that's a kind of principle that I have on how I think I can become a Safal Nivesha or a successful investor. And that is also what I believe really works for most 
people. Again, I may be suffering from confirmation bias here and a lot of people can try different things and that's perfectly fine when you are starting out an investor, you should try different things as far as investing is concerned. But uh, for me personally, in my experience over the last 20 years, I think buying and owning businesses for the long term, high quality business for the long term is a very low stress job very low stress job uh, as far as your money and investing is concerned. And then you have a lot of time to focus on much better things in life. And how are you allocating your capital in the portfolio in terms of uh, uh, geographies and, and types of uh, businesses? And uh, also if you hold uh, other things like gold or cash or so on? Oh, I uh, uh, own some gold, but that's not really as an investment. Uh, that's uh, some kind of family jewelry that we have. But apart from that, I don't really believe in gold as an investment. Uh, uh, it's it's rather a, 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 a another version of cash that we have that can help you in emergencies. So that's that's all I believe as far as gold is concerned. Uh, as far as cash is con- concerned, concerned, I don't really believe in taking cash calls in terms of selling stocks and holding cash for better times and better prices. I would rather save money and uh, withhold a new cash that I'm earning from my business and. Uh, wait for the opportunity to invest that cash. So that is the kind of cash calls that I take. As far as portfolio allocation is concerned, I don't invest directly in international stocks. As I mentioned, I keep it very simple. There are a lot of opportunities in India as well and a lot of opportunities to do well uh, or for business to invest in businesses that are likely to do well over the next 20, 30 years. So I keep my complete focus on India as far as direct stocks are concerned. Though I own a mutual fund where uh, though they invest in international stocks, so I have an indirect exposure to some international stocks out there through a mutual fund. But uh, uh, almost 10% of my equity money is through mutual funds, the remaining 90% is direct stocks. And they're all in India, they're all Indian stocks. Another way of looking at allocation would be say large companies, mid-sized companies, small-sized companies, or penny stocks. I don't invest in penny stocks. I have and I don't really go by market caps, though I really always look at uh, business with some kind of, some reasonable size of market cap. I don't look at very, very small companies. So uh, uh, my allocation probably would be equally distributed between large, small and mid caps. So that's a kind of allocation as far as market caps are concerned, but that's not my primary concern. I'm more focused on the kind of businesses that I own than the market caps at which they are trading at. And how concentrated are you? I'm. I, I, I'm not a very concentrated investor. I generally believe in having uh, around uh, 15 stocks in my portfolio. Uh, so it, it can sometimes become 18, 19, or sometimes it can become 12, 13. But generally, I uh, f- uh, focus on having around 15, 16 stocks in my portfolio. Uh, I, I, I practice a mix of concentration and diversification. Concentration in a way that the top five stocks would be around 70% of my portfolio, somewhere around that number and diversification in the way that the remaining 10 stocks would be the remaining 30% of my portfolio. Right? So it's a mix of concentration and diversification. I I don't uh, 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 believe personally, again for me, uh, uh, with having just two or three stocks in your portfolio because that can really have, you can get richer, uh, you can get extremely wealthier if all those two, three stocks do really well for you. But that's not my cup of tea. I think I would rather want to play it safe with enough margin of safety and not really focus on having just two or three stocks or a very highly concentrated portfolio. I would rather balance between concentration and diversification. And could you tell us what your latest investing investing mistake was and what have you learned from it? Uh, investing mistake in the sense, okay, it was again a mistake of omission. There are a lot of mistakes of omission. That was in 2020 uh, when I had some cash to invest and uh, 
some reasonable amount of cash to invest and the markets crashed and I thought it was a great chance to invest. And I invested around 50% of that uh, cash which I had uh, waiting for the markets to crash or remain low for a longer period of time, which did not happen. We know that it was a sharp crash and then a sharp uh, rise that we have not seen in, uh, in, in recent times. Right. So not investing and waiting for even lower prices, even when I was getting extremely low prices, right, with 50% of my money was a mistake of omission at that point of time. Then I kept waiting and waiting and waiting. I did not really find those prices again since that happened in March 2021. Though I made reasonable investments that period of time, but I think I could have made more. So that was one mistake or a glaring mistake on my part, despite knowing that it's like catching a falling knife. You Once you get reasonable prices and good prices and if you have money you should really invest go all out over there but then i think i was a very cautious person and of course we were surrounded with a lot of uncertainty right nobody knew how covid is going to impact the world and economy and stock markets so uh, i would not want to take the entire blame on myself but yeah a large part of that was because i was wanting to wait for lower prices which did not happen and now after all your work on the pursuit of wealth and having a good life uh, and investing, of course, wh- what are the main challenges that you are working on now or over the, the last months? So uh, uh, as I talk about in the lesson on chopping wood and carrying water, there is no after. You asked me a question after all my work, right? Uh, what am I facing or the challenges I'm facing? So I think uh, the same challenges that I started with 2011 uh, of uh, uh, teaching more and more people how not to lose their heart and money. I think that's the same thing that I'm working on as as of now, as far as my work is concerned, through different ways, through Twitter, through my book, through my podcast now, and through the website that I have. Right? So uh, not much has changed. I think there's a, there's a large swathe of uh, 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 people who are coming to the stock market. As I mentioned, there's so many youngsters coming to the stock market. And uh, there's a lot of mis-selling and misinformation which is thrown around everywhere. We've on YouTube, on social media, everywhere, right? So I think the task has gotten even tougher because people have made money in the recent past, the youngsters. And for me, uh, 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 the task of teaching them how not to lose their hard-earned money has gotten tougher uh, because everyone thinks that they can make money in the stock market. It's very easy to do that, right? But as I mentioned, I am not really too stressed out about that. I'll just keep doing my work and keep focusing on what I, what gives me the maximum amount of enjoyment and happiness. And I think that's all, nothing else. And a big part of that, obviously, is uh, taking out all of the, n- the noise. I mean, you're not spending time on watching stock prices and, and so on all day. Uh, but instead, you're actively reading, writing, drawing, teaching and, and investing. So what are your most uh, helpful habits? Oh, I think reading and writing, uh, if I were to say uh, uh, reading, because I get to learn from people, uh, wise, very wise people who are living and who are dead as well. And writing because it helps me crystallize my thoughts. So uh, uh, I don't remember the author of this article, but someone I think wrote a brilliant article sometime back uh, saying that if you do you want to become the world's best investor, but how do you write? How well do you write, right? So uh, uh, if you look at the best investors out there, whether it's Puppet Munger or Howard Marks or Setlam and or anyone around you. I think uh, they have been good writers. They have been great writers because writing helps you uh, simplify your thinking, clarify your thinking. So uh, I think uh, reading and writing have been the biggest and the best tools that I've had in the last uh, 11, 12 years of doing things of my own. And they keep on helping me on a daily basis. Uh, So I think that's my answer to your question. 
And uh, as a fellow podcast host with your wonderful 1% show, what do you think is the biggest difference between writing and interviewing? Interviewing is like, so podcast has been a great revelation for me. I've been thinking of doing this podcast for a long period of time in a different format altogether, right? Uh, I have interviewed a lot of investors in the past uh, in the written way, in a written manner uh, when I carried those uh, uh, interviews on my blog. But uh, uh, talking to people uh, uh, and some of the wisest people around, right, has given me that uh, uh, front row seat into their minds, right? When I'm actually not just trying to interview them, though my Though my tone may sound like interview because I'm very cautious and uh, uh, extremely alert against all these people who are giving their precious time to me. So I have to be very careful of what I'm asking, what I'm talking about, right? So, but uh, uh, in hindsight, I think uh, it has given me that front proceed in terms of really conversing with these people uh, uh, into their minds, uh, what really worked for them. And I never intended the 1% show to be focused on investing. It has... Uh, I have covered a lot of investors out there because that's my circle as of now, right? I want to take it much wider in terms of going to and talking to people uh, around up, uh, outside investing as well. But even um, the kind of questions that I prepare uh, uh, as far as uh, asking uh, uh, those uh, people who appear on my show is concerned, I try to uh, uh, try to cover areas around living a good life, around decision making, around what they have done in difficult situations. Uh, the kind of mistakes that they've made, what are the lessons that they have learned, right? The kind of lessons they want to teach the youngsters. So uh, that's my idea of the 1% show, right? I, I would not just focus on investing, but I would rather focus on a, a much more wider area of life, right? Living a good life and decision making. This is what my idea is. And as I mentioned, a front row seat into some of the wisest people out there who've helped me a lot in the last uh, 15, 20 years in various ways without them knowing me. So it's my way of thanking them uh, uh, by having them on my podcast. And uh, also, uh, I've been grateful. I think uh, a lot of people uh, have uh, agreed to appear on my podcast, even when I thought that why would they come on uh, the 1% show? So they have done that and extremely grateful for that. So it has been an enriching experience for me. Like everything I do, uh, whether it's blogging or illustrating or writing a book or now podcasting, I think the biggest beneficiary has been me myself. So I think I have a huge amount of uh, gratitude for that. I would definitely second that with with our podcast. And uh, I mean, initially, we wanted to talk to you about your upcoming book, uh, Shut Up and Wait. Uh, can you give us some nuggets from from that? What's, what's coming up? So I think the idea, and I've mentioned about that on the blog as well, the idea of this title, Shut Up and Wait, actually came from Morgan Housel, who tweeted a long time back that if there would be one book on investing, it would have only one page, right? And the title of the book should be Shut Up and Wait, right? And he showed a long-term chart of a stock price. I think it was S&P 500 or some stock price where it was a one-way ride. But over a long period of time, someone just had to shut up and wait to benefit from that wealth creation that happened over like 30, 40, 50 years. And I sought his permission that, okay, he wanted uh, that there, if there's one book, it should be called Shut Up and Wait. And I said that, okay, nobody's written this book. Let me ask Morgan if I can take this title. And he readily agreed. He says that he's not going to write a book because nobody's going to buy a book with this kind of a title. <laughs> I said, let me, let me be adventurous and let me try this. And I uh, floated this idea with a lot of friends, whether would you want to buy this book? Someone said, no, if someone is telling me to shut up, I'm not going to buy his book. And I, my clarification, my way of clarifying is that this shut up is not an admonition. I'm not trying to scold you. This is like a philosophy of patience, right? That you need to shut up your monkey mind and wait, right? For the fruits of your action to really help you uh, 
uh, over a period of time. Uh, so now uh, when I see investing books out there and there's some wonderful books out, out there, right? I see a lot of books uh, which give uh, the same kind of advice, right? How to pick stocks, how to become a better investor, how to pick mutual funds, how do you plan your finances, read the financial statements, right? So Shut Up and Wait is basically my way of saying that, okay, it's a different book. And only when I say it's a different book that people are going to buy it, right? So I have written this book uh, or I am writing this book uh, as a collection of notes that I've written to myself over the past uh, 8, 19, 20 years of becoming a better person and a better investor. And this book is not about any secrets or any techniques that can help the reader become a better investor. Instead, uh, the book uh, and the way I'm writing it, it's going to contain the most important principles, if I were to use that word on investing, right? Uh, and how one can manage themselves in the pursuit of wealth creation and financial freedom, right? So this was, so this is going to be largely a book of principles. Do the name sounds odd, which is shut up and wait, right? Uh, uh, and uh, uh, again, uh, just to repeat, these are the notes that I've written to myself. And these are the stuff that I've already published on my website. A lot of that stuff I've already published on my website, but in a more reader friendly, a more concise format. That's the idea of this book and working on I. I plan to, uh, I initially planned to publish a book in August this year, but uh, I realized uh, that I probably need to give more time to it, uh, uh, more time to write uh, the most important stuff and most important principles rather than, rather than just uh, uh, pushing everything that I have to say, but the most important ideas in a very coherent language, in a very simple language that people understand. So that's the reason I'm going to still take some time and I, plan to publish this book probably in 2023 definitely in 2023 so looking forward to that and from from all the reading you have done over the years uh, i wanted to ask if if there is any book that that you wouldn't want to write but but you would like to read oh uh, i think uh, uh, i i did not really uh, give much thought to it but uh, uh, if there is a book which i don't want to write and i want to read right i think uh, I, I have been reading a lot about philosophy in the last few years and there are some great books on philosophy, whether it's Indian philosophy or Western or Stoicism and all those kind of things. Uh, but I have not come across a book which explains philosophy using the Feynman technique, which is like you're teaching philosophy to a child. There are books written about there, but I even in those books, I find the language a bit cumbersome for a child. right? So I would uh, want someone to actually write a book on combining philosophies uh, uh, of different parts of the world in a language that even a 10-year-old child can understand, maybe through illustration, all those kind of things. I'll wait for some years. If nobody writes, I'll try and do that. But that is one book that I want to read and I don't want to write because I don't have the ability or the competency or the knowledge to write that book at this point of time. I mean, partly this book, this sketchbook of, of wisdom, I think, uh, contains some of that at least. It's a start. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's, it, so. <laughs> it is, I mean, it is a lot of a philosophy book. I mean, it's it's not an investing book, but it helps you as an investor. But it's, I, I, I thought it was mostly actually a, a book on, on philosophy, life philosophy. And speaking about reading, you wrote in quite a recent of your newsletters about uh, rereading and why that is good. Can you tell our listeners your thoughts? There are ways, I think. I also tweeted about it recently that one, when you read, one thing is that they're very few great books or super texts that I would call, right, uh, which uh, must be reread. Uh, why reread? I'll come to that. But I think most of the time we spend our times or most of the 
most of the people even i myself have been guilty of doing that we spend a lot of our time reading stuff which has a very short shelf life or reading stuff which is ephemeral like media like newspapers like social media or or very recently written books right um which probably carry the same idea like like my book that that have been talked about for ages and ages right uh, on the other side of the spectrum you have the books which are enduring right which have endured hundreds of years or 50 years or 60 years or thousands of years and still are read and still are followed and the same principles that worked say thousands of years back are still relevant to the human society right so uh, i have i have shifted my focus over there uh, and that's the reason uh, i think that uh, uh, rereading is a way of learning not just the ideas that you may have missed in the initial part uh, of reading or initial readings of that same book that you are reading now but it's also a way uh, of exploring yourself of the kind of person that you've become from the time you read that book for the first time to the the time as of now right uh, maybe you've read that book 10 years back or 5 years back i'm sure everyone changes over a period of time and we don't realize that but when you look at the same ideas that you underlined say 10 years back or 5 years back you realize that you are looking at those ideas in a different light altogether probably you are trying to understand them in a different manner altogether because now you have a much wider much bigger experience as an investor or as a, a normal human being right compared to when you read that idea for the first time you may have not understood it well or you may probably have understood it in a different manner now you are looking at it in a different light so reading rereading really helps you understand how you have changed as a reader or a thinker or a learner as well and of course uh, uh, all these great books have so many dense ideas that uh, uh, the more you reread them the more you come across ideas that you realize that you miss them when you read them for the first time whether it's rereading uh, the intelligent investor or or a book like poor charlie's almanac or warren buffett's letters right or howard marks memos all those kind of great stuff on investing and if i were to talk about non investing stuff i think one of the books which i read 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 almost on an annual basis or once in two years is dale carnegie's how to stop worry and start living right because uh, uh, we all require that dose from time to time we all worryers right in life uh, whether it comes to a money or comes to a health or family and relationships right uh, so rereading that book how to stop worrying and start living has been a great tool for me to uh, uh, soften the worries that i go through right man search for meaning by viktor frankl is one book right uh, in india you have the bhagavad gita uh, which is uh, one book which i read almost uh, on an annual biannual basis right so there's so many wonderful books which have already written right all these books including the sketchbook of wisdom are just uh, rewriting the same stuff that have been told to us by the super text so i would rather go to the original source and reread that rather than reading the new books of course a lot of them are amazing books that people are writing these days and so many people are writing these days but uh, i would rather spend the limited amount of time on rereading the old books uh, which have survived the test of time so that's my idea of rereading great and you were so generous to sign a few copies of the sketchbook of wisdom for us uh, that we have now given away on our twitter so thank you so much for that it was my pleasure to sign up zard Vishal Kandelwal, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Investing by the Books podcast uh, to talk about you and, and your great book. Uh, do you have something more you want to add before we finish up? Well, I think it's it's been a great conversation to, for me as well. I have uh, so this is the first time actually I am talking on the Sketchbook of Wisdom. Right, as I mentioned, I don't market myself and I don't market my stuff, but uh, 
you've helped me pull this plug or put this plug uh, about the sketchbook of wisdom through your generous uh, conversation with me so thank you so much and uh, uh, again uh, as i mentioned to you at the start of this conversation you guys are doing a great job in trying to segregate wisdom from the noise all around us so i wish i just wish more people do such a thing right uh, it's a thankless job then and i must congratulate you on that so that's my i think closing point to you as well so thank you so much thank you vishal and, and lastly where can our audience follow you and and your work uh so uh, people can follow me through my website which is safalniveshak.com uh, i am also active on twitter uh, with the handle uh, safalniveshak i uh, uh, i'm present in a way uh, on youtube through my podcast the 1% show uh, also on apple podcast spotify google podcast through the 1% show so these are the ways people can find me if they are really willing Okay, thank you so much, uh, Vishal, for this uh, really interesting uh, interview and discussion, and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's my honor to be on your podcast, and all the best to you guys. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. Follow us on Twitter at ib underscore Redeye, and email us at ib dot podcast at redeye dot sc. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.